Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales Scenic Rim and Surrounds Queensland book, Hero of the Hinterland, Bernard O'Reilly and the Crash of the Stinson. On the 19th of February 1937, a passenger plane took off from Archerville Airport in Brisbane, despite the concerns about the weather being a little sticky. The story that follows has passed into folklore, how bushman Bernard O'Reilly put his mind to finding a missing aircraft with seven people on board where no one else could, and by doing so, saved the lives of the remaining passengers. Folklore, huh? Yeah, it is very much. Go down around the scenic rim area and they still talk about the day the Stinson crashed and that was 1937. Wow, that's amazing. So what was the story with this plane and why did it take off if the weather was a little sticky? Well, that's the question that everybody asked, of course. A plane that was coming from Sydney north to Brisbane via Lismore, there was a fair bit of water around in the Lismore area. This was all about working out which route the plane would take, whether it would go to Lismore and then on to Sydney or would fly to the coast and travel down the coast. In deciding which way they were going to go, it meant they either had to climb over the McPherson Range. Aircraft technology of those days wasn't what it is today. If they went to the coast, then they didn't have that problem to deal with. So they're taking off from Brisbane. From Archerfield. Archerfield was the airport for Brisbane in those days. Right, okay. And they were heading to Lismore. Yeah, they had passengers to pick up in Lismore, so the idea was they take off from Archerfield, pick up the passengers at Lismore and then on to Sydney. problem here, as it turned out, was that they uh, simply couldn't get over the McPherson Range because of the condition of the weather, which the Bureau had said you know, would be almost cyclonic. It turned out to be cyclonic when the aircraft got to that part of the world and had to try and climb over the McPherson Range. The captain made the decision to go. Captains still make the decision to go weather-wise, don't they? Yes, Absolutely. There was someone who gave evidence to an inquiry later on who said that the man flying the plane, uh, Boyden was his name, was so careful that he was one of the few men in aviation that this witness uh, knew who would live to be a grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how careful he was. It also reflected, I guess, on the safety standards and operations of aircraft in mm. those days. They decided, uh, obviously, because they did take off, that they were right to go. On board were some fairly impressive people, Jim Westray, Jimmy's nickname, James Guthrie Westray, was a Lloyds of London insurance underwriter. He was in Australia on a business trip. He was only a young guy. Yeah, he was only 25 years old. Joseph Robert Joe Binstead, a 54-year-old company director and wool broker from Sydney. William Walden Fountain, an architect from New York City. He'd been supervising the construction of a new theatre in Brisbane. And then there was John Seymour Proud, a mining engineer and member of the Proud's jewellery family. He was 30 years old, lived in Warunga in New South Wales. And James Graham, 55-year-old managing director of a printing supply company in Sydney. So uh, some fairly powerful business interests on this aircraft this particular day. Mm. The aircraft itself was one of three that the Australian airline company had bought. They bought them in the United States. They were uh, remarkably aircraft for their day. They came complete with retractable landing gear, variable pitch propellers, landing flaps, cruising speed of about 260 kilometres an hour, and a reputation for being the most luxurious planes operating in the USA at the time. Mm. 
The pilots who were scheduled to fly this plane to Sydney this afternoon had already flown that day, both of them. The captain of the plane, Reginald Helsom Rex Boyden, was the chief pilot with the airline. And that morning he'd flown from Sydney via the inland route, arriving about midday. His co-pilot on the upcoming flight to Sydney that afternoon was Beverly Shepherd, an experienced first pilot who'd flown one of the company's aircraft from Sydney to Archerfield that day via the coastal route. So they'd seen both routes on that day. The Bureau of Meteorology had put out a cyclone warning. Mm. This aircraft taxied out and took off five minutes after its scheduled departure time, according to one report. But almost immediately after the takeoff, uh, the plane was pounded by the cyclonic southeasterly winds. The gusts were between 40 to 60 miles per hour, that's about 64 to 97 kilometres an hour, and gusts that were ricocheting from the southern face of the McPherson Range Plateau. So it was creating this upwave of air. And uh, the committee uh, who looked back at this said that whatever the weather was at the time of the crash, it was as severe as it was ever likely to be encountered yes. in that area. You've got an actual first-hand story then of what happened from one of the passengers on board. Yeah, Joe Binstead, uh, one of the two survivors from the crash, made a statement, obviously, because they were gathering all the information they could about what happened. And he said that they'd been flying for about 20 to 25 minutes when he noticed the weather starting to get bad. He said, we really flew into a rainstorm or a squall. I think the wind was fairly severe on approaching the mountains when it would be about 1.30 uh, time-wise. The plane bumped several times and dropped into an air pocket. He says, as we approached the mountains, I looked out the window a couple of times. I noticed that we appeared to be very close over the top of the tree, so close that I became quite concerned about it. I would say roughly we were travelling about 120 miles an hour. That's 190 kilometres per hour at the time. He said he was interested in watching the passenger Westray sitting in the front seat. He appeared to be looking out the window and also watching the pilot. He said, I think Westray was very nervous by the look of him, and I'd be nervous too if I was in that situation. <laughs> yeah. He was watching what the pilot was doing, and he, he noticed that the plane turned a little bit. He got the feeling that the plane was trying to rise, mm. but at that point there was a, a crash. It seemed to him that the tail had been knocked off the plane. It continued its forward momentum. There was a second crash into a tree. He said this all happened in a matter of seconds, and the right wing was knocked off. Mm. The plane plunged headlong into a tree, and that was the final crash. Wow. Binstead, one of the two survivors, was knocked out uh, for a few seconds when the plane hit the trees. When he came around, he saw through the smoke a man attempting to get out of the window on the opposite side of the plane from where he was sitting. As he attempted to assist the passenger out the window, the man told Binstead to be careful of his broken leg. He turned out to be proud, who, once he was out of the burning aircraft, pulled Binstead head first through the window to safety, saved his life. Without this assistance, in all probability, Joe Binstead would have been another victim of the crash. As it was, the only survivors were Binstead, Westray with burnt hands and Proud with a broken leg. Of the survivors, we've got Binstead, Joe, he was 54-year-old. He was the company director from Sydney. And then, of course, Proud, who we know from the Jewelry family, he was only 30, so he's still with us. And the other survivor was Westray at that stage. He's another young guy, 25. He was a Lloyds of London Insurance underwriter, so only the three of them. Yeah. So when the flames were out and the fire cooled, Binstead went back to the aircraft to see what he could recover from things there and presumably to look for other survivors. He found none. He later said in his statement, when he went back to the wreck, I could see the pilot and the co-pilot sitting in the cockpit. They were burnt up beyond recognition as far as I was concerned. The pilot and the co-pilot were sitting there just as they'd been before, and it appeared to me as they had both been killed instantly when they hit the tree. 
The passengers, Fountain and Graham, appear to be lying underneath the plane. I could not recognise either of those bodies. I had one look and I didn't want any more. The plane was reported missing at 7.30 that Friday night. Mm, Where they landed, that's just crazy dense, wasn't it? Yeah, it was heavily wooded, the area that they found themselves in. They decided that the timbered area where they were would have good protection from wind and so they started some fires with the intention of attracting attention to them. Unfortunately, as the evening arrived, so did the rain. The men managed to keep the fires going until two o'clock the next morning, but the rain finally beat them. The despondency is obvious in Binstead's statement when he says, after all the fires went out, we just sat around in the rain. It rained all night until about 10 o'clock the next morning. Mm. So here they were in a terrible situation, stuck on the top of this plateau. The next morning, about 6.30, Westray said that he could see a farm down in the valley with sheep in the paddocks. Binstead and Proud told him that there was no farm nor sheep, but Westray took no notice and disappeared before the other two could say anything more to him. Uh, They did hear two calls as he descended into the valley, but nothing more was heard from him after that. Unable to attempt to walk out of their predicament because of Proud's broken leg, Binstead started to make foraging trips for berries and waters. He found a damaged thermos flask beside the burnt-out aircraft, which he used to collect water from a stream down in the valley. But over time, lack of proper food and limited amounts of water due to Binstead's increasing fatigue led both men to grow very weak. Binstead eventually limited his foraging and water collecting to one trip a day. He'd go down into the valley at about three o'clock in the afternoon and stay there overnight, uh, returning to the wreck site with water for Proud the next morning. What a terrible way to have to survive. Oh, and how awful for both of them. Like they're you know, spending a night apart as well, so you just hope that you know the other one's okay while you're down there doing that. Shocking. There's also uh, the constant care required for Proud's broken leg. Mm, Uh, Without any medical supplies, the men bandaged it uh, as best they could to keep the flies out of his wounds. Uh, For a few days it worked, but they ran out of clothes that were suitable for bandages. And on day five of their ordeal, it became clear the leg was fly-blown. In a state of desperation, they cleaned the wounds daily with a pocket knife. Mm. After 10 days of this fraught existence, uh, Binstead and Proud were almost at their end. Yeah, awful. In steps the hero. How on earth did Bernard O'Reilly well, go about this exercise? The, of course, after the plane disappeared, there was a, a massive search operation between uh, Brisbane and Sydney trying to find mm. this plane. There were all sorts of sightings along the way. Papers carried the headline, Stinson Airmail Plane Missing Between Brisbane and Sydney, gave sketchy details of the passengers and crews. There were, in fact, several sightings that were taken seriously by the civil aviation authorities, and almost all of them were outside Queensland. And after 10 days, as we know from Binstead and Proud, there was no finding of anything. Mm. Yep, you'd just give up after a while. You'd be too weak anyway. you just accept your fate. Yeah. So after the plane had been missing for 10 days, into this whole thing stepped a fellow by the name of Alfonso Bernard O'Reilly. He was a local bushy from up on the plateau. His family uh, ran a boarding house up there for uh, tourists to go. It's still there today, still called O'Reilly's to this day. Really well known. And he had this vision that the plane hadn't been searched for on the mountain. No one had been into the area where the plane disappeared on foot. This had been O'Reilly's playground since his family moved into the area when he was 14. He'd watched the progress of this drama unfold over a week or more. He, like most others in the area, was forced to believe that the plane went missing probably into the sea, uh, considerably south of the McPherson Range, which forms part of the Queensland-New South Wales border. But he wasn't satisfied with that. 
he became convinced in his own mind of two things. One, that the Stinson crashed somewhere along the McPherson Range, not further south. And secondly, the, that he had to go and look for what he believed would now only be wreckage. So he got that idea after meeting up with his brother-in-law, didn't he? Yeah. Herb. Herb had kept all the newspapers and Bernard started going through them, didn't he, and got a bit sort of fired up by all that. He did. Fired him right up and he headed straight home from Herb's place, <laughs> uh, who he and his wife had actually gone to visit, to uh, mount up on his horse and, uh, and go and see what he could find. I think he said, I couldn't get home quick enough. He did. Uh, He said, that night I could not get home quickly enough. Darkness overtook us as we rode towards home up the mountainside. Mopokes called from across the gorge. Here and there a dingo sent out his protest to high heaven. He was quite a literary man as well. It was very poetic. But but I was busy turning over plans for my search and working out the program. Yes, very literary man. (laughs) Using an aerial survey map, he drew a pencil line that indicated the Stinson's course and reasoned that if the plane was to be found here, it would have been on the northern slopes of one of the four high mountain ranges. So he set off on his horse, but before long the terrain was simply too rugged and he sent his horse home. and headed on foot towards the first of the four high lateral spurs on which the plane might be found. The going was tough. It was one continuous canopy, that's how thick it was. Bernard estimated that there were roughly 80,000 acres or 30,000 hectares of unbroken trackless jungle on the McPherson Range, most of which visibility was limited to 10 yards. To suggest that a man could search this area thoroughly is uh, too absurd for words. Uh, Three lifetimes would be all too short Well, he had to find a quicker way. He made camp before heading for Mount Throkban, a place he believed he might be able to see the path the Stinson had taken across the range, and it worked. What he saw was a tree that was light brown. It must be dying. That's freaky, isn't it? To think he looks right over across that canopy, he sees one brown tree and thinks, that could be where the plane crashed. Yeah, that far away. But why in all that ocean of trees was this one freshly killed tree situated with a straight pencil line cross piece map. Fire? Lightning, perhaps. No natural fire had occurred in that dripping rainforest since the world began. But a hundred gallons of petrol, that could do it. <coughs> so Bernard put his head down and took off into the jungle. The going was all blind. I didn't see that tree again until I was 20 yards from it eight hours later, he said. Uh, so after five hours of working his way through the jungle-like growth, O'Reilly arrived at the base of the plateau where he'd seen the dead tree. But now he was there, mm-hmm. he didn't know what to do next. Mm. But the decision was made for him when he said he distinctly heard the sound of two human voices. He thought they were coming from where he'd estimated the burnt-out tree to be, about three miles away or five kilometres away. Wow. So he headed for where he heard those voices. Three miles on, he reached the area where he estimated they came from. And after taking a break to get his breath, Bernard let out a loud, piercing cooey. (laughs) And then the mystery voices again. He said he saw Proud first, his eyes far back and his head like those of a corpse, laying on the wet ground with a broken leg that was green and swelling and maggoty. Pretty ordinary picture, isn't it? Oh, poor fellow. He turned to Binstead and said, well, he tried to shake hands with him, first of all, but he said his hand was like that of raw meat. His legs were like that too. The cloth on his trousers was worn away by crawling over the rocks to bring water. Uh, There was some talk, lots of talk, but who remembers what was said, O'Reilly said later on. The first sane remark I remember was Binstead's, how about boiling the billy? Wow. So now he's got to get back out of there somehow and get a doctor and get help and get them out of there. Yeah, but the immediate task was to find Westray, who wandered off down a gorge. They found that he'd fallen into a raging stream. Mm. O'Reilly expected to find him dead at the bottom of the cliff. 
but he crawled down the stream for miles. Uh, suddenly, O'Reilly thought he'd found him. Ah, there was my man, just ahead, sitting with his back against a big boulder. Hello, I shouted. Oi there. And he didn't move. Uh, O'Reilly came round the front of the rock, and there was no need of a second look. The Englishman was dead. There was a burnt-out cigarette stump between his fingers. His right shoe and his sock were off. He'd been bathing the smashed ankle in a torrent beside him. His face had injuries. Mm -hmm. He was gazing, it seemed, down the gorge where safety lay and uh, civilization existed. Mm. Uh, this is what he'd been heading towards, unerringly, from the moment that he'd left the wreck. Poor guy. So there's only two remaining, so Bernard had to go and get help. By 10am the next morning, Bernard had organised a doctor to accompany him to the crash site. Ironically, the doctor said that he believed the maggots actually saved Proud's leg from wow. gangrene. I like the role of the local postmistress. <laughs> Gracie did well. Gracie Silgox spent the night on the phone organising two groups of men who, using lanterns, would get the doctor in and another group to cut a track to get the survivors out. But mm. they did get them out, and they survived to tell the story. Mm. I saw that Bernard was almost unrecognisable. Yeah. Um, his wife, Viola, and sister Rose rode down to, to meet them as they were coming out of the area where they mm. rescued these guys. She didn't recognise him because he'd lost so much weight. How much? I think it was about 16 kilos. Wow. That was only in the few days he was doing the rescue. Yeah. But he'd covered a fair amount of ground in that mm. when you consider that he came across the eight miles yeah. and then out again and then back in a couple of times. Yeah. They went to Sydney on a holiday and people recognised O'Reilly down there as the bloke who'd uh, rescued these people. Viola thought the recognition that he got while they were in Sydney was terrific, uh, but Burden didn't. <laughs> well, that's sort of a royal parade for him. He was like a hero. She thought it was a bit of fun and he wasn't so excited. Didn't want to know. <laughs> there was an inquest. In a nutshell, what were the findings? Well, both the Air Accident Investigation Committee and the Colonial Inquiry of 1937 found that the machine was swept down by abnormal currents of air. Mm. And that's certainly how it was described by the people who were on the plane when it happened. Yeah, well, if you're going to take off with the cyclone coming, yep, what's going to happen? So what became of the survivors? Well, let's start with Joe Binstead, um, who, having survived the accident, uh, went on to lead a full life. He died in 1969 at the age of 87. Mm. Uh, he's buried in Macquarie Park Cemetery in Sydney. John Proud uh, decided to pursue a career in mining rather than in the family jewellery business, and his contribution was recognised by having the mineral Proudite named after him. Mm. Uh, knighted in 1978, died in 1997. Age 90. He yep. lived a good long life yep. after that. James Westray, the man who went off to try and find help, is buried yeah. where he was found at the base of the waterfall. And oh. the words of Bernard O'Reilly sleeps in his orchid-covered grave amidst some of the most beautiful scenery in the world. He was very poetic, Bernard, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Oh. Yeah, interesting man. Mm. Uh, in 1940, he wrote the story of the Stinson rescue. He called it Green Mountains, largely because of public demand. Mm. During the Second World War, he served, and a skill displayed on the mountain that day of the rescue were again put to good use with map reading and navigating by the stars. Post-war, Bernard worked at various times at the family guest house. Mm. He died on the 20th of January in 1975 at Bow Desert from heart failure following pneumonia. His wife, Viola, died two years later and they rest together in the Kerry Cemetery. Oh, it's lovely, that cemetery. It's on the front cover of our book, I think, for the Scenic Room book. It's a beautiful little cemetery. It is, and yeah. if you have trouble finding it, there's a little gravel track that runs up beside the St John's Catholic Church in Kerry. Follow it up there and if you look off yeah. to the right, you'll find. There's also a fantastic statue. There is. It's at O'Reilly's Rainforest Retreat on Lamington National Park, and it is literally a mm. carving of O'Reilly finding the two survivors yeah, it's brilliant. at the plane. 
and it looks so much like them all. It's a really it, it brilliant really statue. Yep. Yeah. Wow, what a man. He was Bernard Riley. What a story. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the Follow Us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well.